Resiliency Within, with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine miller Karras. Welcome to Resiliency Within. I am so happy to say that I'm here again for part two with Dr. Brooke Ellison. She was on Resiliency Within on March 20th this year, 2020. I can't believe it's 2023, but it is. Um, Her interview was so inspiring to so many that we wanted her back, and she agreed to continue to share perspectives about disability and advocacy that she so eloquently describes in her latest book called Look Both Ways. I also want to let our listeners know that we're also live streaming on Facebook Live on um, our um, Facebook page called Resiliency Within, if you'd like to also see us as we do the show today. Well, let me say a little bit more about Brooke's experience. Um, after a nearly fatal run-in with a car at age 11 that left her paralyzed from the neck down and, a- and unable to breathe on her own, Brooke Ellison went on to graduate from Harvard, write a memoir, earn a master's and doctoral degrees, teach policy and ethics as a tenured professor, all the while navigating the world as a woman with ventilator-dependent quadriplegia. Also, I believe there was a movie made about you too that's not in this bio that I need to mention. We'll talk about that in a little bit too, Brooke. Um, Also, um, what Brooke does, and and we said this during the first show, but it, it really does bear repeating. She tears off the cloak of invisibility around disability, not only to champion the rights of the blind or the mobility impaired, but to make far more earth-shattering claim and that what she experienced having to learn how to live differs from what every human being endures only in a matter of degree. We are more alike, she says, than we are willing to see. Brooke's transformation is an amplified version of the kinds of adjustments we all need to make when we have undergone an unexpected and often undesired change in our lives. Now, Brooke has quite a pedigree I'm going to say a few things about this pedigree book. Um, it's she is an associate professor of health policy and medical ethics at Stony Brook University in New York. She has a PhD in sociology from Stony Brook University and um, an MPP from Harvard Kennedy School. Um, she fights for the rights of the disabled, and and she, and she also says about this, and I love what she says so that. Fighting for disability rights is a fight for human rights, equal access to health care, um, for schooling, for everything, equal access. So welcome again, Brooke. Welcome to the show. Oh, my goodness, Elaine. It is such a pleasure to be here again. Thank you. I, I can't believe that it's been over two months since <laughs> our last conversation, actually. It does, I, does not was, feel like that, but it is, a, it is such a pleasure to be here again. It was such a pleasure to talk to you the first time. So I look forward to a you know, really rich conversation again today. Well, I, I am also looking forward to it. And we only got, we, we prepared a lot of questions last time. We only got <laughs> six. So I know that we have a lot more to do. Let's There's see. A lot to say. There's a lot. 
lot to say. Yes, we have a lot to say. But I'm going to ask you something that we just actually talked about today. So you were the commencement speaker at Harvard when you got your master's Mm -hmm. from the Kennedy School. Is that correct? Now, we were talking a little bit about it because I was asking her about her movie. And I said, well, who who played you in the movie? And it's one of my favorite actresses on the Hallmark Channel. (laughs) And so can you tell us the rest of the story? You said the story here. Yeah, yes. I saw, um, actually, I gave the commencement address at both of my Harvard graduations, the first one um, when I was graduating in 2000 as an undergraduate. That was actually the first speech I had ever given. And I gave it um, off the top, not off the top of my head, but from uh, from memory uh, in front of an audience of like 20,000 people. Oh my goodness, it was the first speech oh. I'd ever given. And yeah, it was uh, it was intimidating, but like I guess I set the bar high high for myself and everything yeah. since then has been uh, quite not, not quite as daunting. Um, but then I also gave uh, the commencement address at my uh, graduation from the Harvard Kennedy School, and that was in 2004. So um, from 2000 until 2004, um, the Brooke Ellison story, uh, the, the movie that was made about my life was kind of um, coming into fruition. So Christopher Reeve had called me actually right after I had graduated from Harvard the first time in 2000. He had read about me uh, in the New York Times. There was a cover story about me on the, in the New York Times about my graduation. And he um, was quite taken with my story. Uh, Can I just pause you for a second? Because sure. hi, I'm Christopher I, Reed. I would have said, okay, which one of my friends is, is playing a joke on me? Exactly. Did you for any moment thought that this was maybe someone doing a prank or did you kind of <laughs> know it was him? It, maybe, he had a very distinctive. Uh, yeah, well, actually, um, I was I was tipped off that this may happen. I was really sure, but I was tipped off that it might happen. Kind of, there was a bit of scuttlebutt about this. Um, his agent actually called and said, uh, "Yes, this Brooke Ellison. I'm Christopher Reeves' agent. Um, do you mind if I patch him through to you?" And you know, what was I going to say? No, I'm very busy right now. Sorry, I can't take his call. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been quite a thing. And so what did he ask you? What did he, can you share with us what he said? Sure, sure. So he said, um, you know, I, I have long wanted to um, make, a, make a movie about somebody whose life was similar to my own, somebody living with quadriplegia and on a ventilator. So at this point he had, he had been, I guess, um, I guess five to six years post-injury living with quadriplegia. And um, yeah, he had wanted, he was back in the, in the director's seat and looking to um, get to make a movie about somebody with quadriplegia. And he didn't want to tell his own story, but he was trying to find the right story to tell. And he saw, he read about me and was taken by my story and asked, you know, was this something that you would consider? And, you know, again, like, that's not a question that you get passed very frequently and you know i said well of course you know of course but then i said i had to backtrack it a little bit and said well then i need to talk to my family and make sure that it's okay with everyone because you know story about me necessarily includes everybody else in my family so we had a a short very short family conversation about it and came to the affirmative thing it's something that would be um yeah, quite a miraculous and, and and special thing. Not something that happens, you know, ever really to many people. 
so he so he came down to my home from his home in Westchester, and we did uh, a working lunch. It was my first working lunch ever, and we talked about what this would look like. Um, so did he come to your house, or did you go to a did. restaurant? Yeah, he no, he came house. to my house. Yeah, yeah, that was the first time that I think um, anyone in a wheelchair of his size and mine who were in the same room were kind of like trying to navigate around each other. These two chairs, yes, exactly. Like, envision it. Oh my gosh. And it was just like, it was, it was so overwhelming. You know, it came with a, a team of people and a producer and we started kind of getting, we started getting to work about um, um, what it would look like, what the story would entail. And um, then shortly thereafter, then September 11th happened and, you know, things got put on hold, right? Their entire lives, everybody's life got put on hold and you yes. know, everything was being reevaluated. Um, certainly not least of which, um, or not, not the most extreme, um, of which was, was uh, broadcasting schedules and, um, you know, when different programming was going to happen at what time. So things got put on hold for a while. And then uh, there was, you talk about things being resurrected and got put on, on hold again for a while. And then it was actually, I was close to um, the conclusion of my second year of my master's program. And Christopher being called again and said, you know, we had remained in contact during that time and you know, had gone to uh, events that he had invited me to and, and that kind of thing. But then he calls my home, actually my, my dorm room, <laughs> at my apartment up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, and said, you know, it looks like things are back on. Are you still interested? And I said, you know, of course, that would be incredible. So, so this was close to the end of my uh, second year, uh, my master's program. Um, my father would come to visit, uh, you know, every other weekend, every third weekend. And when he had returned home after visiting uh, my mother and me up at, up at Harvard, um, there was a message on my answering machine at home. It's at a time when people had answering machines in their homes. Yes, that was a long time ago now. <laughs> a long time ago, exactly. Exactly. And said, uh, hello, my name is Lacey Chabert, and I've just been cast to play Brooke in the Brooke Ellison story. So my father got this message and he was like, I don't know what is going on. So he sent the message to me. And so I reached out to her and we had a, just a lovely conversation. She was so um, excited and eager to take on this role. And you just asked, you know, I know, I know that you're going to be graduating from, you know, from Harvard again soon. Would you mind if I came to your graduation? I'm going to be filming something in Connecticut. It's not too far from here, from, from Massachusetts. So I could just, you know, drive up and, um, you know, spend the day with you. And of course, you know. As I said, of course, yeah, that would be wonderful. And you know, my friends are all you know, a little bit starstruck. My brother, of course, as he he just lived, you know, like a mile or two away. He was quite quite smitten. He was starstruck with Lacey. He, yes, he, so exactly. Great. Exactly. She was actually supposed to drive back to Connecticut that evening, but like the ride that she was going to have, um, got canceled so she so she, she asked my brother if he would drive her down so he was just like totally you know gaga at that, oh, at that, that point so, so yeah. that was like one of the things he'll never forget in his life never forget <laughs> drive Lacey should be to her never <laughs> forget exactly 
exactly. So then the movie was filmed that summer, the summer of 2004 in New Orleans. My family was down for the filming of that. And it was just a really just tremendously familial experience. Chris's family was there and some of his family members were in the film. So his wife, Dana, um, has a cameo in it, as does his his son, his youngest son, Will. He has a little cameo in it. And it was just such an incredible experience. And my family was all down there during the filming. And then um, it it aired on A&E for the first time in October of 2004, just 10 days after Chris passed away. So it was just such an emotional experience. And what had... um, what we had thought was going to be entirely celebratory in nature. It took an obviously very different spin. Um, so a lot of the promotion of the film yeah, that Chris was going to do, um, or we were going to do jointly, I ended up doing myself. I did a, a full hour on Larry King Live. Oh, to, my to God. It. And I was just, uh, I wasn't even 25 years old at the point at that time. So kind of, navigating those waters myself but it just um it made what would have been you know just entirely um kind of euphoric uh much less so and but i feel very connected to chris through this and knowing that this was the last thing that he yeah was able to do yeah so knowing him and the fact that he that he died before he got to see you know it come to the screen me is there something you know some meaning that happened to you uh, regarding that i know we talked about um we were talking about how sometimes people will say oh well um everything has uh, you know everything that happens to you you know you can learn from it but almost this kind of toxic toxic positivity way right right and i know you and i both don't quite like that so i don't know can you can you say something about that Sure, sure. Um, so I, I guess we, as we were talking about it, people say these kinds of things to me a lot, you know, that everything happens for a reason and, you know, that, that kind of thing. Even members of my own immediate family say those things to me. And I'm I'm a ardent believer in in the opposite of that, right? That there's a lot of things that happen that 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 don't seem to have any meaning to them. Um, but we can find a sense of purpose and then we can derive and divine a sense of meaning um, in them. Uh, not everything is without meaning if we can find a sense of purpose in it, right? Or find something of value to continue. And that was very much the case with my relationship with Chris, right? Like if he and I became very close. There are very few people on the planet and I guess comparatively speaking who live with quadriplegia ventilator dependent quadriplegia so there are very few people who you can talk to who have similar experiences and can share um, some of the difficulty some of the pain some of the um, unique insights that you gain right all of these things are part of the experience of living with a disability Um, and the fact that I had that time to share with him was so important to me. And um, it was because of that that I took on a lot of the work that I took on since then, whether that was um, advocating for stem cell research and and being so visible in a highly, highly controversial debate that I think, you know, had I not 
met him and had he not been such an important part of my life, I would probably shied away from, right? Like it's easier to just kind of say, okay, that that's that's too difficult for me. That's not a battle I want to take on. Let somebody else do that. But I got well, myself right in the thick of it. So Brooke, I don't know, please correct me if this is not right. Sure. It's almost like his meaning and purpose was given to you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, is that right? I mean, I mean, well, I I wouldn't want to be so presumptuous as to say that, but that's how I've tried to live my life for sure. So, so, so like I started a nonprofit organization to try to change the narrative around stem cell research and biomedical research in general, right? I ran for public office, again, not something that I ever would have imagined myself doing with that issue as the central plank of my platform, right? So like not only doing something controversial in and of itself, but taking on such a highly controversial issue on top of that in a district that was heavily in my opposition, right? But I did it nonetheless. And then you were writing my PhD dissertation and some of the hours I was spent, you know, spending in front of the computer. I would say, oh my gosh, I can't do this anymore. You know, I would, I have actually here in my office, I have uh, you know, little figurines and uh, statues. And I write about this in my book, actually. Um, you know, uh, Superman, I have a, uh, a a lithograph kind of picture in my bedroom of, of Chris as, as Superman. And I look at that all the time as, um, you know, just a, a reminder of why I'm doing the kinds of work that I'm doing and his his impact on my life. And you now as I fight and advocate for um, a population, for a community of people that has for so long had um, backs turned against them, it's very difficult work. It can, it can seem like, um, you know, Especially given some of my background, I could easily say, I'm just going to go do something else. I'm going to go do something that is easier or that doesn't require as much frustration or resistance. But I mean, anybody can do that. And I've I've been a disciple of the um, guidance of you do the thing that only you can do. And in many ways, I feel like this is part of the only thing that I can do. So, um, you know, that's the way I've tried to live my life. Wow. You know, because we have spoken before and I hadn't heard this part of the story (laughs) and I hadn't heard about your nonprofit. Do you want to say a little bit about the nonprofit? Sure. Absolutely. Um, So I had, uh, yeah, so so I graduated from the Harvard Kennedy School in 2004 and uh, kind of immediately started a PhD program in political psychology. And when I was in at the Harvard Kennedy School, I, I learned so much about activism and change and how you go about making change. And when I got into the PhD program, I thought, um, you know, this program is great, but there, I want to get my hands dirtier than that. You know, there are things that I want to take on. And so then shortly thereafter is when I decided to run for for office for, for New York State Senate. Um, I was given an award by the local state senator, just kind of like a women's achievement award or something. And I met with the state senator in that in, um, in receiving that award. And uh, I talked to him a little bit about, he asked me like, what issues are of concern to you that I should be talking about in Albany? And I said, 
well, you know, at this, at this time, um, there were heavy restrictions on embryonic stem cell research and in biomedical research in general in the United States and other states like California were taking on the work at the, at the state level. And I said, you know, if California was doing this, I think New York, you know, with, with its infrastructure for science research should really be at the helm of this. Uh, so he said, well, I'll look into this and let you know and I'll get back to you. And he never did. So I said, well, okay, I'm going to try to take your job. And so I did that at just 27 years old, 26, 27 years old. And then the outcome of the election didn't go in my favor, despite the fact that it got a lot of attention, a lot of media attention. It was featured on the Today Show and endorsed by the New York Times and kind of a whole host of things. Um, and then after that, I said, well, let me see how I can continue to, to further this work. So I founded um, the Brooke Ellison Project, which had as its mission to provide education to people in general on what stem cell research is all about. So um, at that time, uh, the research was being heavily maligned, heavily mischaracterized and what it's all about, the kinds of lives it could change, the kinds of um, conditions it might ultimately make an impact on um, and how what a timeline might look like. So all of these things were being completely misrepresented. And I said, you know, if I'm not going to be doing the actual science, I want to make sure that I could put together a path that would make the science more easily done. So I, I made a documentary with a producer, actually. The producer who had done my uh, political campaign commercials. Um, his name is Jimmy Siegel. So he and his team just did this for nothing. They made a 45-minute documentary called Hope Deferred, talking about the lives of people who can benefit from advances in stem cell science. And it culminates, there's you know, some, some testimonials and, and uh, interviews with uh, scientists themselves. And then um, it culminates with a speech that I had given at the World Stem Cell Summit uh, a year before. And, um, you know, it's, it's quite, quite powerful, quite powerful. So I, I did an, uh, a number of lectures and speeches you know, across the country on what this is all about and uh, how it can benefit people's lives. Wow. So <laughs> this is a whole other trajectory. I think we're going to have to go to, to a part three of this show. A trilogy. <laughs> That's right. The tri we're going to do a trilogy. <laughs> but, you know, one of the things that, you know, even calling um, it hope deferred, one of the things that um, to quote you from the first show that we did, you said hope is the byproduct of struggle. I was very touched by that, um, that quote, that statement that you made. Mm -hmm. Could you share a little bit about that when you? Sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I think that we use the word hope very frivolously, right? We use it uh, all the time, right? And probably in the course of a day, we would probably use it a hundred times. I hope for this to happen. I hope that this happens. I hope it doesn't rain. I hope, you know, I hope I get to work on time, right? All of these things that I think completely dilute what hope is all about. So I started researching hope as a construct when I was. Uh, in a, an undergraduate. Uh, so I was studying cognitive neuroscience. So taking a real kind of sciencey look at human behavior. And um, many students who were in this program were going to go to medical school. So this is kind of theater, a theater program into the medical program. And um, you know, when I talk about 
talked about some of the work that I was looking to do and how I wanted to write my honors thesis. And I talked about hope and resilience. They were kind of like, you know, what does that have to do with medicine? What is that all about? Um, when hope had really been the biggest factor in my recovery and how I had gone on with my life after my accident. Um, so I have come to understand hope to be not the uh, denial of challenge with the awareness and understanding of challenge and the desire to find a path forward. Nonetheless, like, I don't think I could have ever had the understanding of hope that I have right now were it not for the difficulty that I have faced throughout my life. You know, I, it would have been, I think, a degradation of, of hope, as I understand it now, kind of a diminution of, of hope. I think it is a much stronger const construct than that. It is the, the backbone that gets us through the times of greatest difficulty. It allows us to find a path forward or to set a goal for ourselves and say, okay, I understand that things are difficult, but I'm going to not let this difficulty affect my life in any greater way than it has to, right? I think very often when we face difficulty, we it becomes all-consuming and it seems like it's taking over every single part of our lives when it need not be so. Um, after my accident, you know, I, I could have easily said, you know, my, the limitations on my mobility is are going to be all-consuming. I can't move on with my life, but I didn't allow myself to view my life in those terms. I, I circumscribed those difficulties to the least impactful role that it could possibly play, that could possibly play, and then shifted my focus to the other things that I could still do, right, still have um, effect over. And that, I think, is a really important aspect of hope as well. Yeah, I know that there was, um, you had mentioned that there was like a, a you know, there was some reflection that you had that you came to the realization that goes along with what you're saying is that you did not need to fear your disability that mm -hmm. actually you were strong mm -hmm. and that you were more pur purposeful and that you know this this um perception that people with disability they're weak mm -hmm. was just not true absolutely yeah so you know it's interesting just yesterday, right? So we're recording this on May 23rd or May 22nd. Um, so just yesterday was the 32nd anniversary of my returning home from the hospital. Um, so I returned home on May 21st. And at that point, I understood disability uh, to be very similar to how other people understand it, right? To be a source of weakness or something you need to be embarrassed about or is going to make your life lesser. Um, and in these 32 years, I've come to understand it entirely differently, that I am a much stronger person, a much more um, purposeful person, a much more resilient person, and fearless and creative person, a stronger problem solver because of my disability, right? All of these things, I think, are so important. I never would have understood disability in those terms or from that lens were it not for my experience firsthand from it. And you know, I remember being so terrified of my life. I didn't know, you know how things were going to evolve. I, didn't, I, I was very much the product of that same social thinking that disability is an aspect of one's character that makes you a lesser individual or the person to be pitied. And I didn't want that for myself. Yeah, and, and I spent a lot of time after my accident almost trying to ignore 
my disability, right? Like maybe people, maybe if I talk loudly enough, people will just not really notice that I'm in a wheelchair, right? Like those kinds of, you know. So when we, when we get back from the break, I really would like to explore this because I think you made the statement as well, um, how we are taught from early on, we don't want to get too close to disability. Mm -hmm. And why would that not also include a thought when you become disabled unexpectedly? Mm -hmm. And how you had to untangle that and create something new. So as you can see, we are we are talking to a very hopeful person, um, Brooke Ellison, who you you know, you have this tendency of like making others feel hopeful. I'm hopeful <laughs> right you. now as you, as you talked about this. So I'm going to notice that inside my body because I can sense that. I don't know if you can sense it in your cheeks. Wow, that, thank you. that hope is, is very well sensed as well. So thank you for that. Thank so you. we'll be back in just a couple minutes and we are going to continue this very thoughtful and um, conversation with Brooke Ellison. And remember, I want you to go buy her book, Look Both Ways. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine Miller Karras book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at Elaine at ResiliencyWithin.com. Elaine Miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life. Your health. Your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine Miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. 
Welcome back. I am here with Brooke Ellison, um, who is really an extraordinary person. I, you know, before I knew that there was one movie made about her, and then I learned that there was even a documentary um, called Hope Deferred about um, her efforts and her advocacy. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this the second half of the show. But I want to ask you another question, um, Brooke, mm-hmm. if that's okay. Sure. Um, because this fits into what we were talking about before the break, and that is, why is it important for individuals to shift their thinking, to recognize disabled people's strength, adaptability, creativity, humanity, all their potential, despite their um, physical or mental limitations? Right. So this has been what I have come to understand as one of my uh, major, I guess, senses of purpose in my life right now. Um, So after my accident, I think I was very much the product of social indoctrination, social thinking that led me to believe that people with disabilities uh, were the ones to be pitied. Right, the ones who could easily be marginalized, and there was nothing necessarily wrong with that. Right, the ones whose whose life, who, whose lives were some unfortunate lesser version of everybody else's fully capable life. Right, all of those things I I thought were just natural. Right, that that was just the way you were supposed to think. And when your own life changes in such a radical way, and um you're living in a social, I guess, context that tells you that your life is is not as worthy as others. You want to do something about it, right? You want other people to say, wait a second, maybe how we have been characterizing people with disabilities and understanding their lives is not quite accurate. And it took me a long time, actually, after my accident um, to realize that. So actually, I just wrote an email to a friend of mine yesterday because because it was you know the you know, the 32nd anniversary of coming home from the hospital where i mentioned that very thing that when i returned home from the hospital i i this was way back in 1991 you know i entered a world thinking that about myself and i and now i realize what a disservice and an injustice i did to myself thinking that you know my life was lesser than everybody's everybody else's and i shouldn't be I shouldn't expect the same kinds of things for myself or the, you know, to, to, to be able to uh, complete an education, you know, the ability to, to find a job or to, you know, to, to be romantically you know, connected to someone, to have a family. Right? All of those things I thought were just going to be denied of me and from me, and that should just be the way I, I understood my life. Now, in the years since then, I know how absolutely wrong that is, um, the people who I have come to know who live with disability are, and I say this all the time, are among the strongest, most determined, most creative, most leadership um, exhibiting, most problem solving of anybody that I know. And you have to have those skills in order to navigate a world that's not set up for you, right? Every single day when you live with a disability, you encounter something that um, you don't expect and you need to find a way around it, right? Every day living with a disability, you are navigating a world that is has not been built with your needs in mind and it takes um, ongoing levels of creativity and forethought and resilience to, you know, to 
to get around that. So in addition to my professorhood at Stony Brook, I'm also um, the vice president of technology and innovation at a nonprofit organization called United Spina. And, you know, I have meetings and calls with people with, you know, who are wheelchair users talking about technology and talking about how they integrated into their lives. And many of the tech, many of the pieces of technology that many people use are not tech pieces of technology that are even on the market, right? Because technology and just as, just as the world is not designed for their needs, technology is not always designed for their needs. So they kind of jerry-rig their own solutions to many of the challenges that they experience because you have to. And if qualities like resilience and problem solving and leadership and creativity are not the kinds of virtues that we hold most dear that I don't know what are. So yeah, that is the drum that I have been beating over and over and over again, that we should not be talking about the weaknesses that disability creates. We can't have a conversation with, about disability without talking about all of the virtues that come about by living with a disability, right? So I have become a major champion of what I what some have called the epistemology of disability, right? Like the knowledge set and the skill set that you have to develop by virtue of living with a disability. And these are really, really valuable things, right? So if we're talking about how, you, how to um, increase employment for people with disabilities, we shouldn't always be talking about, you know, just kind of acts or charity, right? Or like, you know, we want to meet some kind of quota for our diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. There are really important skills that you're missing out on by not including people with disabilities in your workforce. So I was, you know, I think kind of um, going along with what you're talking about right now, I think that you say this, that people often feel uncomfortable around people with disabilities. Right. They may not know what to say. They may think, you know, like you say, they may say things, well, oh, your accident happened for a reason. Look at all the good things you've done in the world. And you go, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. um, that doesn't feel like that today as I've had to um, deal with my double pneumonia, you know, something. Right, exactly. That would just come but, out of nowhere, right? They yeah. would just like fall into your lap saying, after you have an accident, right? You had to find them. You had to seek them out and do something about them. So I imagine that, you know, there might be people listening that have, a family member that is encountering, you know, what you've learned, what you've encountered, and that there are ways that people are kind of disrespectful that maybe they don't even realize they're being disrespectful. Can you help kind of illuminate our audience of things? You know, please don't say this, you know, please, maybe you can come towards me and say this, if you'd like to talk to me. I mean, what are some, you know, what are your guideposts for for those of us that may not have this understanding? Yeah, yeah. All right. So like so first and foremost, right, there'd be obvious things, right? Like you don't want it to be um you uh outwardly uh discriminatory or dismissive of somebody, right? That's just like the yeah, the, the the basis, right? But then I, I talk about some of those examples in, in the both ways at times when I've been um maligned or um just very uh horribly treated for no other reason than because of my disability right people who did not even know me but you know treated me very very badly because of my disability right so that's like you know that's step one um but not treating that not treating people with disabilities with disrespect is not enough right like i don't think that any of us should feel like we've been any tremendous hero by not 
you're outwardly rejecting somebody with a disability, right? It takes much more than that to be inclusive and to, you know, to make somebody feel like they're an actual part of, of the world. Um, what often happens to me um, in organizations of which I, I might be a part or um, things that, I, that I'm involved in is that people just they don't come over to talk, right? So, um, you know, I'll be involved in an organization and we'll have a meeting and there'll be a break and you know, people kind of chat amongst themselves but feel like, you know, I'm not somebody who they can, they can chat with or they'll feel uncomfortable having a conversation with me and you know that, that i have felt for years you know for instance since my accident you know really that um you know people don't really know how to take that first step in, in in um generating a conversation as you know right we're going on possibly three sessions here together and i got a lot to talk about you know, we do so have a lot well certainly. i'm thinking i go well, maybe there needs to be, um, I've been on Larry King. I've been, on- <laughs> um, I have a movie about my life. You may want to come and talk to me. I might have something really. <laughs> they shouldn't even require all that. People just have, you know, the interesting lives or things that they want to share or unique perspectives on like things going on in the world. Right. I mean, there, there's a, there's a lot to talk about, but people feel that level of, uh, hesitation or uncertainty when you should not feel that way, right? These people are afraid they're going to say the wrong thing or make a gesture that's not going to be met with the intention that it was delivered, right? Like those, those I think, are kinds of things that people feel. So they just want to avoid the situation altogether. Um, but I mean, that's knowable, right? That's learnable. I know, I Talk thinking- to somebody, pick up a pick up look both ways, and right, and and learn a little bit. And and- book, right? Because I think the other thing I imagine could happen. Please tell me again if I'm wrong. Is that then people only want to talk to you about your disability? Exactly. What's it sure. like being a quadriplegic? Oh, then blah blah blah. And then they go, well, you know, there's a war in Ukraine going on. I have some ideas about that. Right. Exactly. Like, well, I do have a breadth of knowledge about. <laughs> Does that happen to you, Brooke? I imagine. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely, and actually, yeah, it's interesting. Um, for a long time after my accident, you know, well into graduate school, well into you know, my years at the Kennedy School and, and as an undergraduate as well, like I didn't want to have anything to do with disability, right? Like I didn't want to talk about it because I didn't want to be kind of pigeonholed in that way that that's the only thing that I can talk about and do, right? Like a one shrink pony kind of thing. I didn't want that. So I wanted to be known for all the other things that I was looking to do and be a part of. Um, so yeah, so I, I've always been fearful of that. Like that's going to be the only thing that I'm associated with. But okay, you know, so now, now my next question is: okay, What about sex, love, and relationships? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, but now, like I, I, I understand disability as you not. I mean, not only its own topic. Right. Like we could look at it that way. We could look at disability as its own siloed topic to talk about. Or let's talk about all the ways that disability intersects with everything else that's going on in the world. Right. Like your love and relationships. And, you know, we were just talking about here earlier, you know, just before right? the war in Ukraine. Right. How people um, um, are are experiencing spinal cord injuries at a very high rate or that, you know, evacuation procedures or disaster response and disaster relief efforts are not always inclusive of people with disabilities, right? If we're talking about education policy, we should be talking about how our kids with disabilities are going to be educated in the same way. If we're talking about healthcare or transportation, right? These build back better 
initiatives that you know we've been trying to move off the ground, right? How do they also take into account the um, the needs and the insights really of people with disabilities, right? You could talk about all of these things, um, not only absent of people with disabilities, but inclusive of them as well. And you know, I've I've been so heavily immersed in different issues that I think that a vantage point like my own is really is really valuable and like we can't have complete conversations about any human rights issues without also talking about disability and um one of the courses that i had taken as a graduate student was a course on human rights and um i was asked to be by by just like a a tremendously influential human rights thinker michael ignatieff uh, is his name um and i was asked to serve as a ta for his course the second year that i was a student there and you know again like i amazing it was it was but i don't think that i did it as well as i could have right i think that i could have been talking about disability as a manifestation of human rights at that time but even then i was like I don't want people to only understand me in these terms. So I didn't do it as well as I could have. And I wish that I could could redo it. You know, I wish I could um, do I it guess differently. I want to say to you right now to give yourself a little bit of grace <laughs> about that, because look what you're doing now with your book, being on oh, this show. Thank you. I mean, sometimes I think, you know, that there's a readiness factor yeah. and you have to live certain amounts of life before you're ready to do that step, even though you can go back and go, oh, well, I could have done this and this. But what, you know, I'm saying, well, what are you doing now, Brooke? You're doing <laughs> That's this. True. That's a really valuable yeah. point. That's a really, yeah. valuable. And, you know, I don't think that I could have written this book. Yeah. So having written the, the book and also everything that has to do with, it really is a book about um, human rights. It's a book about the rights of every person to be respected. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I don't think I had the wherewithal or even the language to talk about these things years ago. Like it took a lot of introspection and evolution as an individual and uh, a coming to understanding of how disability is quite powerful, right? It's not weakness. It's, it's strength in a way that um few very few people ever have to experience strength right it's resilience in a way that very few people ever have to be resilient and like that there's there's a lot to be gained from that there's a lot of of knowledge about life and value and worth and struggle and And humanity and that's what you point out in your book the contradictions that coexist Mm -hmm. in your life they really co- can co- coexist in most of our lives, as you yeah. really so eloquently pointed out. How do we reconcile fear and despair with resilience? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they can exist both times. And that's kind of how I got to the title of the book, right? So, yeah, I was hit by a car, right? So it's obviously an acknowledgement of how, you know, we need to look both ways when we cross the street, right? That's like the obvious surface level meaning of the of the title, but it's much deeper than that, right? In order to understand our lives, we need to understand them for all their multifaceted dimensions, right? And how we can have kind of contradictory or at least juxtaposing emotions or thoughts on things that exist at the same time. And you need to be to be fully appreciative of both of those things, right? You can't, you're not going to be um, happy all the time. We're not going to be satisfied all the time. We're not going to be sad all the time, right? You need to understand your life in all of those capacities in order to get a full appreciation of that, 
of it. And um, in moments of sadness, it's important to know that there are moments of you know, adulation. There's are moments of, of tremendous happiness and pride if you just are willing to find them and to look for them. Well, you know, and, you know, one of the things I've said that I certainly experience with you and you talk about it is, you know, without, you know, if, if courage really happens because of our fear, you know, we're courageous because sometimes we're afraid of something and then right, we, exactly. we, it's meaningless. You know, Otherwise, <laughs> we do it anyway. And, you know, I think that the things that you have shared with me so far, and I feel like I could have I want to just come and live at your house for a few weeks <laughs> and learn more from you <laughs> is that um, is that there's so much that we can learn that is about, is about repair and recovery. Sure. No matter what has happened to us. Yeah, and you don't know that, right? You don't know how strong you can be unless you, you find those times of extreme difficulty, right? Had I not had my accident, I don't know if I ever would have known this about myself. Right. I don't think I've ever would have had the opportunity to understand this side of myself. Well, you know, and I guess as we, you know, we do those what ifs because I know that you as a child loved to dance. Yeah. That ended when you were 11, but you know, you were really dancing with your life. Thank um, you. you know, really, I would say, my gosh, you have created some amazing dances. Wow. Um, all the Thank different you. things that you have shared with us. I mean, it's that really means the world to me. Thank you. Um, you have you are still a dancer. <laughs> You talk about the three pillars that make hope so empowering. Mm -hmm. And, you know, here I've, you've studied hope. You, I imagine you've studied the neuroscience of hope. Mm -hmm. sure. um, so tell us a little bit about that, the three pillars. Right, right. So um, this is kind of a mnemonic device that I have uh, taught myself or trained myself. And it would have been nice if it was hope, but it's cope. It's a C-O-P-E. And um, the first is kind of compartmentalizing the challenges that we experience, right? So kind of hearkening on what we were talking about before, when we experience difficulty of any kind, uh, it seems completely overwhelming, completely all-consuming. Um, you know, it's hard to understand how the world is moving on around us and that, you know, like how, how, how are people going about their day when I'm experiencing this difficulty, right? It's easy to say that your lives are, that our lives are over, right? That easily could have been the case for me. And there were some, certainly there were some days when I felt that way, right? I don't want to be um, hypocritical about it in any way or false about it in any way. There, was, there are plenty of times when I felt like, you know, my goodness, this is, you know, I can't do this. But first, the first step of, of hope, as far as I understand, is to compartmentalize the challenges that we're facing to the, the least impactful role that they play in our lives, right? Put limits on it, right? Put boundaries on it, right? This is the, these are the aspects of our lives that they're, they're effectuating or uh, affecting in some way. And then we reorient our focus, right? So we orient our focus to something else, right? So the, the O in cope, right? Shifting our thinking to the other things in our lives where we can still have, uh, find purpose in, find meaning in, and go full bore in those areas, right? So you just mentioned I was a dancer, and right? I understood my life in terms of all the different physical um, activities that I was involved in, whether it was dancing or singing or uh, being on, you know, league soccer or um, karate, right? All those things defined my life. And that was how I understood my life. I was all of these things and then bam, they were gone. And then I needed to re-understand myself. I needed to think about how I was going to still find purpose and excitement and enthusiasm in my life in some other way. So I focused my attention 
than on my education and all the time that was spent in, you know, the dance studio or the karate dojo was then, you know, looking at, at textbooks and enriching my mind in all the ways that I could. And then, you know, from there, finding mechanisms of personal empowerment, whether or not that is from within one's own self, right, or relying on the people around you, right? We all need that. We all need to be aware of the network of the people who are around us. I think um, people with disabilities are often kind of uh, maligned or, or thought less of because they need people around them to help them, but that's really everybody, right? Everybody needs to have the support of people around them to get where they need to go. You know, none of us gets to where we're looking to be on our own. So being willing to understand that, to receive help when we need it, to offer it when we think we can offer it to somebody else and finding those strengths within ours, our own self to, to build off of and then kind of setting goals for ourselves to, you know, to move forward. That's kind of how I've understood hope. And it, I've relied upon that time and time again throughout my life over the years when things have gone just like abysmally wrong, right? I, I allow myself to feel the loss or feel the frustration and say, okay, how, I, how do I need to rethink things? And I think that we do that, uh, we need to do that on a larger scale. If we're talking about societal problems, that's how I understand leadership. And leadership is kind of a, a collective societal version of hope on the individual scale. And, you know, I feel very fortunate to talk about these things in all of these different capacities. Well, Brooke, I, you know, here we are again at the end of the show. <laughs> is there anything that you would like to say to our, in a minute or less? Anything in a minute or less. Don't yes. want to thank you, about, Elaine. Yes. Thank you. Oh, this is such a delight to talk to you again and to all your listeners. Thank you for listening. Thank you for, for experiencing this hour with me. Um, yeah, I'd love to share my life with, with people. So I would love if you were to read my book. If not, I would love for you to, you to find me at my website, which is brookeellison.com or reach out in any way. Uh, I'd, I'd love Ellison.com. I'm going to say it again, brookeellison.com and the book, look both ways <laughs> read it you know i said when um, um before the show started i was saying to brooke i said you know i'm just gonna pick up any part of your book and and it's quotable <laughs> and but this was something i had when i read it i highlighted and i want to end the show with it today and you say my life has been branded by tragedy but who i am today the strength that i have found and the identity i have based my existence on is a product of the moments of unrelenting hope the opportunities for pristine love and the times when i was brought to my knees in heartache or pain but still summoned the will to fight on these isolated moments are not caused by disability but they are framed by it moments that i now see as the trajectory of my identity years in the making, but invisible to me 30 years ago. Oh, I got a chill when I read that, um, Brooke. Thank you so Thank much you. for being here. And I think um, my listeners, <laughs> I said this at the end of the first show I did with Brooke, if there is an example of what else is true, this has been uh, really a tapestry that she has threaded through the entire conversations that we have had, both in part one and part two. And I do believe that probably in 2024, she's coming back to see me again. <laughs> have to see what, else, what else she's up to? She's probably going to run for president. Maybe we need to do that, Brooke. <laughs> so 
in any event, and until we meet again, um, this is Elaine Miller Karras signing off for Resiliency Within. Thank you so much, Elaine. You're so welcome, Brooke. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.